Hello everyone, this is Reverb producer Alex Helberg. Just giving a brief note of context at the beginning of this show, this episode is part two of a rejoinder that my co-producers and I put together, taking on the hot texts, to borrow Calvin's term, that we've found most disagreeable in the wake of the 2020 election. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would highly recommend going back and doing so first. Our last show ended with us discussing former President Barack Obama's scolding of leftists using the slogan, Defund the Police, and we pick up this show discussing another example of anti-abolitionist rhetoric, though this next example is taken from July of this year. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. So I just wanted to really quickly share, lest you think that we are beating up too much on just Democrats here as well, because there have been critiques of defund police and abolish prisons from the left as well, or the ostensible left, I guess. So we haven't talked about them ever before on this podcast, and I don't want to totally put them on blast here, but the podcast Chapo Trap House, a comedy podcast on the left a while back, published an episode with journalist Matt Taibbi where they had a pretty free-ranging discussion on police and prison abolition, where one of the co-hosts, Amber Ali Frost, uh, articulated some particularly interesting arguments, I think, uh, not interesting per se, but more kind of glib and not really very well-founded arguments uh, against the idea of using something like abolish the police or uh, defund the police. There's something fake about it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to put your finger on what it is exactly, but the way that you, you can't engage on the issue at all is, to me, a major red flag. I mean, um, sure. you've read Catch-22, right? Have you both sure, read sure, yeah. So this... This the whole abolish the police uh, thing reminds me of like the Great Loyalty Oath Crusade. It's like, are you for it? Like once you say you're for it, all of a sudden there's somebody who's like more for it, right? And and there's no there, there's no possible way of not signing, right? Uh, and everybody notices if you don't sign. And you know it it's people are are continually caught up in these manias now. It's it's like a style of politics that I think maybe Twitter has made worse, where you know, all the nuance disappears from lot, lots of these issues. And it's, you know, are, are you for us or are you against us on this thing? When, you know, the thing might be very complicated and, and you know, the, the solution that's being pushed is might not be feasible. There's something really, really odd about that. Like, I don't, I don't know what it really is, but there, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. I think to me, the tell is the fact that it's not being pushed as something that people need to explain or gain like, um, you know, a critical mass of support for. Like, um, you saw this with like, like prison abolition. And I'm like, you know that like, nobody offline even knows what that is. You're like, oh yeah, prison is garbage. It's, it's cruel, it's vicious. So what does that mean? And you'll have people like, I don't know, Marion Kaba be like, you know what? I'm no longer explaining what I mean by prison abolition. Um, and it's like, well, oh, then you don't care. You don't, this doesn't actually mean anything to you. You're not worried about presenting an alternative program because people want to know what we're going to do with the murderers and rapists. That is actually a legitimate concern. That's not like a 
to say that that's not a legitimate concern just sort of like reveals the fact that you don't have a lot of experience with murderers and rapists. So, you know, there is also a flank of the far left uh, that is uh, that treats defunding the police and abolishing prisons and things like this as weirdly enough, a sort of like identity politics issue, which I think is uh just very bizarre, particularly just, I mean, I think it takes a particular kind of internet poisoned brain to envision a world where <laughs> everybody who says a slogan like defund the police or believes something like that is unwilling to explain it to people, who is un- is unwilling to try to do political persuasion on a sort of more grassroots level, but also just, just the kind of way that they're condescending to people like, well, if you actually talk to people like I have me being a you know Brooklynite podcaster who's making three hundred thousand dollars a year, <clears throat> somebody who's in touch with the real working class like I am. I know that the real working people are actually very concerned about locking up the murderers and rapists. And, it's very you know, frustrating that everybody feels like they they exclusively have access to the people as like yes. a united <laughs> voice that has a shared set of priorities. To me, that. Yeah. It's very clear that you're like talking about the people as one, just like Joe Biden, right? Like there's no way to yep. really do that in America right now. And so if you're claiming that you are tapped into that unified voice, I doubt, I doubt you when you say those things. Absolutely. So I was thinking in this too, I mean, there seems to be a failure to even recognize or reckon with the fact that frameworks and alternative programs are being developed, right? And there is a praxis surrounding them. I think about the work of, which is quoted here, or at least called upon, right? Maryam Makabe and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who are thinking about the kind of work that makes prisons unnecessary, the kind of frameworks that could transform society to, to meet people's needs, right? There isn't any kind of engagement throughout that quotation with the work like of Robin DJ Kelly and, and discussions of racial capitalism and how these things are rooted in structural inequities that are inherently racialized, right? And how the prison industrial complex becomes an arm of the settler colonial state, all these processes of, you know, exposing people to criminalization. So to pose it as a question of just that, right? What do we do about the murderers? What do we do about the sex offenders is a failure to actually recognize what is at the heart of some of the critiques that are skirted over and the alternatives that are currently being imagined and have been imagined by these quote-unquote proverbial people, right? There are people on the ground doing this work. Right. The other thing I wanted to point out is that everything that Ben's talking about is viewed by this camp on on the less far left, on the centrist far left. I don't even know what to, what to call them sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the anti-identity politics far left, they viewed that stuff as like, or they frame it kind of misleadingly as a boutique academic reading list. Right. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Miriam Kaba. These are people who academics know about and people on Twitter, but people out in the world don't don't actually agree with these ideas. But the problem with that is that you can make that exact same critique of all of the bread and butter issues that that these people want us yes. to focus on Medicare for all labor. I mean, these are all boutique issues as well because the left is disempowered. Yes. So are you for all of it or are you just for some things because you want to triangulate 
on other things. And I think that's cowardly and duplicitous. And, and also in what Taibi said, there's similar kind of duplicity about rhetoric and organizing that we heard from Joe Biden and from Barack Obama, where he's implying that forming constituencies and saying, are you for this or are you against this is somehow bad as though we don't have to do that for Medicare for all and for constituting a 99% and for building a labor movement. I mean, these are just tactics we have to use across issues and they're just kind of pointing those out because they don't want to engage on this one issue because it makes them uncomfortable. And I think it's important to ask why, why does it make them uncomfortable? Is it because the organizing is being led by working people and black people in over-criminalized communities, not them. Maybe that's why. Yeah, that's really the rub, right? Like these, as Sophie was saying, like clearly people who are not really in touch with uh, with people on the ground, assuming that this is just like internet people, you know, their whole worldview seems to be based on this weird microcosm of Twitter, which is kind of wildly unrepresentative of public opinion, which, you know, I think gives a good reason to mistrust uh, or at least have a little bit of healthy skepticism towards people who are ascending in media spheres who claim to speak for the left, quote unquote, right? Especially just, again, I feel like it's kind of a tired critique at this point, but people who make $300,000 a year are very different from uh, from you and I. They have a very different way of viewing the world and the material interests that they have, you know, being media personalities, being people who are within a very different type of material power structure. Uh, that definitely influences the way that you think about certain kinds of issues. So, yeah, as Calvin is saying, maybe it's better to actually, like... St- you know, check in with people in your community. How are they feeling about this? You know, check in with the people who are organizing, you know, in, you know, to decarcerate schools and uh, and work to establish, you know, different kinds of methods of uh, citizen control over, uh, over, you know, local arms of governance, because you might be surprised by what you find there. <laughs> That's all I'll say on that one. I think that was that was kind of all I wanted to uh, to get across in my examples here. So, Sophie, do you want to do you want to give us your example of your your hot text uh, post election? Yes. So my text is an analysis article from the Washington Post, and I guess I can share my screen. I copied it and pasted it because I don't pay them and I was able to <laughs> I just copied and pasted it into Google Docs so I wouldn't lose access to it. Nice. Democracy dies in darkness. It does. It's, I know. I know. Democracy dies behind a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this analysis from the Washington Post that was written on November 30th and it is a response to White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany's tweet from a few days earlier. And I chose this because I think it is just one little example of a trend I think that we will see a lot. Obviously, Kamala Harris is the first Black woman to be elected to such a high office, right? And I think there is, I I don't know, I think we can anticipate a lot of discourse around what it means to have women in positions of power. There's a, a f- several things I kind of take issue with in this little analysis. I guess I could kind of read through it and 
talk about it as I go. So written on November 30th, and they begin by saying, from literally the day after President Trump was inaugurated, his White House press operation has been anything but a model of honesty and good faith. And now it appears ready to go out just as it came in. So we got kind of like a sort of a snappy mean girl tone from the start here. Um, (laughs) Trump's communications team on Sunday took issue with a Washington Post report about President-elect Joe Biden's new all-female senior communications team. Its argument... We actually did it first. So basically, there was a tweet to say that President-elect Joe Biden is going to have an all-female senior communications team. And Kaylee McEnany cried foul from her personal Twitter account on Sunday night, saying, quote, President Donald Trump already has an all-female senior White House press team, McEnany said. So does Vice President, so does Flotus, so does Second Lady. The completely discredited Washington Post once again reveals their blinding propagandist fake news proclivities. So obviously it's kind of a, a bad faith. Yes. Very impressed by that. So it's kind of a bad faith accusation that it's fake news to say that Biden's staff will or will not be a certain level of female, I guess. (laughs) And the article says that the message was promoted by others at the White House and self-styled conservative media watchdogs. And according to this analysis, there's two problems with this. The first is that objectively Biden's team will be more female. So let's get that out of the way first, right? They kind of engage on this. Well, actually, it is more female. They explain how, you know, there's several positions currently filled by men that when Biden's the president will be filled by women. So objectively, Biden's team will be more female for the record. And then they say, scrolling down, the second problem, though, is McEnany et al. are erecting a straw man. The headline that was featured in this tweet said merely that Biden had appointed an all-female senior communications team, which is true no matter how you define senior. The headline doesn't reference a claim that this is in some way unprecedented or that Trump didn't do the same, yet McEnany suggested that the headline was somehow fake news that discredits the post. So I think this is a little bit silly because they say that there's two problems with the argument. First of all, that we're right, our team is more female. But second of all, it's a silly argument to begin with. And it just seems like they want to have it both ways. Like, we're going to engage with McEnany on her level, as if her argument is legitimate. But then we're going to step back and say that it's not legitimate, it doesn't matter. And it kind of goes on to sort of equivocate this, right? Again, we can debate top just as we can debate senior. But again, three of the seven jobs that were just filled by women are now held by men. And those are unquestionably top jobs when it comes to speaking on behalf of the administration. So it just is like really gets into the weeds of precisely how female or not female whose staff is. And it talks about whether or not this is a a legitimate critique because they didn't do it first or whatever. Nowhere in this article does it really address that I'm not sure when being a, a woman was a signifier of anything policy-wise. So whether or not this is a marker of anything, I would say is quite questionable. So so I think that, you know, and this is obviously a trend in centrist, liberal, you know, strategy, right? Well, we're going to have a woman in the role. Hooray! She's a woman. And let's not talk about her stance on any issues and let's not talk about any policy she does or does not favor. She's a woman and that's the victory. And it just is like, I think we're going to see a lot of this. I think that there's going to be a lot of one-upsmanship. How female or how ethnically diverse are these various arms of whose administration and really getting into the back and forth and, and measuring tit for tat, who does what, And it doesn't address at all the fact that this is uh, sort of an empty 
Like, it doesn't really indicate anything. You can be a black woman and not have very progressive policies, it turns out. Uh, do you think Margaret Thatcher had girl power? Yes, of course. Do you think she effectively utilized girl power by funneling money to illegal paramilitary death squads in Northern Ireland? I don't know about that. And so I just think that there's a lot of silly stuff going on in this article. And I'd be interested to see what you guys think about it. You know what I think of when I think of feminism? Conceiving femaleness as a quantity. Yes. That can be possessed. That's right. That can be sort of a scarce resource that we should all fight over and compare with a measuring stick. Yeah, I really liked your use of the term measure, Sophie. Like, yeah. it's There's a bizarre acceptance of a extremely Trumpist frame that like our administration is the most female. We have the most women. You've never seen women like this. <laughs> and the Washington Post is responding. Yes, we have. No, actually, ours are the most, which just reminds me of like Hillary Clinton trying to call Trump dangerous Donald. Like you can't beat him at his game. Right. Right. And you're validating the game in doing it, which I think is so silly. Like, they, they want yes. it both ways in this article. Like, that's a silly thing to say, but also, we're still right about it. I, I don't know. Like, pick one or the other, you know? Like, dismiss yeah. it as, as an empty straw man, as they've said. Like, they've accurately called it out as a straw man, but still are holding up the straw man. Like, it just is like a goofy, empty, I don't know. No, I think you're right, Sophie. I mean, this is, it's so bizarre more than anything because, I mean, so I'm not a woman. I, and you're not? I, no, I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not a woman, but I, but I have a feeling that just as a human being, people don't like to be treated as like beans in a jar <laughs> as like, yeah. ah, exactly. I have, I have more of this quantity of something than you do. Like that is, I mean, that's just like dehumanizing. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing really respectful in any way about saying like, look at me, I've got more women in my cabinet, right? Like that is a, that yeah. is fundamentally just a just like you were saying kind of like a vacuous non-debate uh, non-policy non-debate right kind of like when the new york times endorsed elizabeth warren and what's her face oh and amy klobuchar, klobuchar. Yes. <laughs> amy klobuchar whichever whichever one of those yeah yeah it's, a, it's just you know it's one of them it's fine you take your we pick. got two of them right That's extra female yeah, yeah. no i so think that's a progressive endorsement like it's saying yeah. to say nothing of like how you know, Klobuchar and Warren's platforms as they espoused them did or did not overlap. Like what a ridiculous, what an insult. Like it should be a lady. Yeah, it is. It is like, honestly, it's isn't it so funny to look back at that? That feels oh, like that was like 20 years ago. years ago. I know. Oh, it's, yeah, it's crazy. All of that. The idea that that was just in, you know, February or whatever yeah. this year is like remarkable. Yeah, so far away. And yet we're still seeing resonance of that kind of attitude repeated in the the papers of record for our country. Right. Like like being a woman in politics is still being treated as an object to be counted rather than somebody whose policy positions are meaningful enough to be reckoned with and debated on a meaningful level. Like I I genuinely believe that arguments like this are practicing a very dangerous kind of tokenism um, Absolutely. That, that begets just like you know not only is it disrespectful and dehumanizing as a broader you know thing but it's also just kind of corrosive to discussions of policy and and women's place within you know policy making circles right honestly like speaking as woman i don't care how many women are on his press communications team i don't care about that i i 
the idea that that's going to, and well, what's kind of depressing is that I know that there are plenty of women out there that are, are quite happy to see these things and are, who are posting like congratulatory memes on Facebook to find when, you know, when Kamala was chosen as VP or whatever. Like it is, it does work for a lot of people, which is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that really, but. Well, that's the thing, right? Like we can then debate on their policy records, right? Like that's kind of the, the point here, right? Is that if we are really truly trying to overcome a gender divide here, like we should be able to debate policy records of both men and women in equal measure, right? Because they both deserve enough credibility and respect to at least enough to be able to talk about the things that they believe in. I don't know why that's like a controversial position here. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a kind of cynicism to this, and I think it's important to critique that. I do want to say, though, that like we don't want to fully go representation doesn't matter at all, and we also no, want to acknowledge that like all things being equal, representation is better. The problem is yes. that all things aren't equal. Yes. Certain kinds of politicians and certain kinds of people with certain kinds of CVs get elevated to these positions, and that's the problem more than more than gender issues. And the other thing is that in this specific instance, I feel like the real problem is they're being dragged into like a Trumpist identity politics and representational politics that's even more cynical and they're indulging it and they're kind of bean counting, as Alex said. And and, and that's just like so depressing. It it absolutely is. Because I mean, if you take this example, right, you're, what they're admitting is that Trump has a, a very female you know, communications team. As far as I can tell, that doesn't really amount to any kind of progressive victory that I can see. So why are we using that as a marker when we can see that if if Trump has, do as they admit, a very female staff, what has that meant for me as an actual woman who cares about, you know, various rights and issues that actually affect my life? It hasn't really meant much. So when the Washington Post is like scurrying to be like, well, but but this position and this position will also be staffed by a woman. Like, I don't care about that. I mean, I, of course, I care about representation and I think there should be a lot more women in positions of power, of course, but that alone isn't going to mean anything for, for the real women out on, out in the world, you know, as far as I can tell, because it hasn't meant anything under Trump. So why should it be any different under Biden? Or under George Bush when Condoleezza Rice was the secretary of state. Yes. Yeah. I think this is the the work that ultimately sounding representation or sounding diversity does, though, right? It obscures what is at the core or at the heart of these issues. And I think so much of the rhetoric we've been engaging with today does that work of obscuring. We're incapable of seeing what is at the heart or what is at stake here, right? The Department of Homeland Security, you think about the Cuban immigrant nomination Alejandro Mayorkas. What does that mean? I think those interested in radical politics are not interested in that type of representation. We're interested in those positions of power being eliminated altogether, right? So it obscures or flattens the potential of waging a critique of these structures of power, right? We're sounding diversity. We're making ourselves appear as a more progressive political platform but we're just going to reinstate and reinstitute at times even harsher politics, but they'll just be behind closed doors. It won't be harsh rhetoric that's in your face, but we'll still have some violence. And we're going to be patting ourselves on the back all along the way for how progressive and diverse we appear to be. 
And I just think that that's, you know, all through, I don't know, the Biden campaign is very much about sort of appearance and platitudes more than it is about any sort of substantive policy. So, you know, I look and sound like you want a president to look and sound, and I have a female vice president, and like these things that are supposed to appease the masses because they look and seem like victories, whether or not there's any substance to it at all. The ironic thing about that is that if you actually looked and listened to Joe Biden throughout the entire campaign, that is not what I want a president to look or sound right. like. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's just me. Whew. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate, Ben, that you kind of tied this back into our other discussions of the incoming administration and the kinds of discourse that we're seeing from them, because I think it's it's important to to start analyzing early the kinds of strategies that are being put out there as more of just this appearance, a semblance of progressive politics that kind of mask this idea that, you know, nothing is really change as Biden himself said nothing will fundamentally change right which is i think more to the point of you know speaking to the direct stakes of what a Biden presidency could mean and if nothing does fundamentally change yeah where does that leave us in 4 years what is the next the next sort of horror show political battle going to look like i think that should be that should be something that's very concerning for all of us here. So, Ben, I understand that you have something to share with us here as well. Could you serve us up your hot text for this rejoinder? Sure. So, you know, one thing that has been on everybody's mind is fraud, right? To, to what extent? And so I've chosen an article that's definitely a hot text in relation to fraud. And I think we could hear that sounded very well just in the title itself. Fraud or no fraud? This election wasn't fair. Subtitled, the joint operation by big tech and big media bolstered former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign likely landed Democrats in the White House. So this is from our all-time favorite uh, source, right? This is from The Federalist. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read through a few paragraphs at a time. Yeah, wait, can we stop for a second? This <laughs> yeah. guy, the author's name <laughs> is Tristan Justice. Their names are always so good. <laughs> Made up. Totally made up. That's not a real person. <laughs> Look at him. I mean, we're, we're hearing the voice of justice here. How can you not trust it? I like that. Yeah. So from the voice of justice, right? <laughs> Tristan Justice writes, President Donald Trump has been deriding the election as unfair ever since the race was called for Joe Biden last month. Launching a series of lawsuits in target swing states decided by razor thin margins. The president has now hinged his 2020 hopes on the existence of voter fraud big enough to tip the outcome. Whether there was enough ballot corruption to manipulate the result remains an open question, one to be decided in the courts. Whether fraud actually took place in an election with record turnout in the form of mail-in voting with last minute rule changes, there's no question. Fraud or no fraud, however, Trump is right when he claims the election wasn't fair. So what are your thoughts on that opening? It's December 4th, this came out today, yeah. December 4th. And he's still saying it's an open question whether there was enough corruption to manipulate the result. Presumably that means determine the result. And whether there was fraud, there's no question there was fraud is what he's saying. Right. And I 
don't think that's true. I, I'm very curious about what the definition of fraud that's being constructed here is, right? Because, you know, it, there there's a, a very <clears throat> wiggly line in between, like, the legal definition of fraud and the sort of unfairness that is being leveraged at the processes leading up to the election from one side or another. So I'm curious to hear how that continues to get developed here. Yeah, I think that uh, I like this, right? So even if there is no fraud, so let's start with the actual argument of this article. To start with, it was an open secret who corporate media were working for from the moment Trump took office. Democrats took notice that legacy outlets were eager to amp up their Russiagate conspiracies, proclaiming the president a covert Kremlin agent operating to undermine American interests. For years, the American people were subjected to nonstop Russia hoax storylines to introduce the Trump presidency, establishing a narrative that would never die even after a two-year special counsel investigation debunking the entire scheme. As the calendar moved closer to election day, the media didn't just get any more responsible. Quite the contrary, liberal journalists infected with, and, and this is absolutely my favorite turn of phrase in this article, oh Trump derangement syndrome, <laughs> developed symptoms that grew worse by each month moving from one conspiracy to the next. First, the president was colluding with Russia. Then the president was apparently working in a legal quid pro quo with Ukraine. Then the president was apparently manipulating the operations of the Postal Service to suppress voter turnout in a scene straight out of House of Cards. I have to point out here, so liberal journalists infected with Trump derangement syndrome developed symptoms that grew worse by each month. Huh. I wonder if there's like a, you know, a, a literal virus yeah. that maybe uh, played a role yeah. in how the media covered Trump over the last year as well. Yeah. I, this this whole thing about like, so Russiagate, we've done episodes that have covered, you know, the Russia conspiracy stories and things like that. And, and I'm not, you know, saying outright here, and I don't think we've ever said that there is no collusion necessarily between, you know, uh, oligarchs in this country and oligarchs in other countries. I think that that is, you know, worthy of investigation and scrutiny. But also this contention that the Russia gate narrative like followed us all the way to the 2020 election is, I think, a little bit of a stretch because the, you know, after, talking about yeah, that over the last year after the Mueller report was published and it was like, oh, yeah, there's no collusion. It was pretty much dropped, I think, in most media discourse other than, again, unless you spend all of your time online, like all of your time on Twitter looking for this stuff, you're not mm -hmm. really hearing it anywhere out in the out in the real world. I don't know. That voice sounds a little bit louder online, I think, than it does in, in real life. Yeah. And with the Ukraine thing, I mean, I think they did kind of prove collusion in that instance they just didn't have the votes to impeach him the ukraine thing was very corrupt like we know that phone calls were placed by the administration to try to get dirt on biden i mean i don't really care about it it didn't change my vote one way or the other but like he's presenting that as if it was you know through the use of the word apparently apparently working in a legal quid pro quo with ukraine pretty sure that was shown through evidence as something that really happened and then the postal service it totally fell apart this summer we all know that we stopped getting mail on time as if these are all totally deranged conspiracy theories like materially we've seen their effects 
Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting take on it. And then it goes on to talk about the ways that, you know, these conspiracy theories joined with the big tech elites in Silicon Valley, right, were responsible for election interference. And the conclusion, which, which I'll just go into, you know, talks about the ways that in addition to these conspiracy theories being thrown around, one of the biggest problems surrounding the election was censorship, right? So it says, Twitter, of course, escalated its censorship as November approached. Meanwhile, widely debunked conspiracy theories surrounding Trump's dystopian manipulation of the Postal Service to secure re-election have gone unchecked. Big tech's election interference came to a peak when the New York Post began running exposés expanding the public scope of Biden family corruption based on material from a laptop retrieved from a Delaware repair shop. The first bombshell report, published on October 14th, revealed Joe Biden had been lying throughout the campaign, that he had never discussed business with his son, Hunter, who served in a lucrative board position of a corrupt Ukrainian energy company while his vice president father dictated White House policy toward Ukraine. That's the a goddamn lie. Ignored. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. Yes. Yeah, so the story was first ignored by the same legacy outlets that spent years pouring ink into Russiagate conspiracies. And it ink. goes on and on with issues surrounding legacy media outlets. Yeah, the, the true circulators of conspiracy discourse. Yeah. <laughs> the Federalist has certainly never done anything like that. Right. Yeah. Justice, you know, here, the, the writer, not the idea. Right. has definitely definitely been sounded again in a very very interesting way right and i love the the closing here right the president would have captured a second term had he won just 45,000 more votes across the tipping point states that's great wow that's great okay i mean but he didn't yeah he would have won if he had gotten more votes like yeah that's that's yeah. that is objectively that's how true it works. yeah i mean this is just the same stuff that genuinely deranged liberals were writing four years ago it's just the shoes on the other foot now yeah i mean the ukraine thing ben can you scroll back up to the paragraph where you were reading about the biden the hunter biden story because i thought there was a really interesting instance of like embedded assumptions there there's this phrase the public scope of biden family corruption based on material from a laptop retrieved from a delaware repair shop that's assuming that the laptop was, in fact, retrieved from a Delaware repair shop. That's never been proven. A lot of journalists have looked into this like incredibly dodgy New York Post story and have not been able to confirm it. Biden family corruption is also assumed there. I mean, look, there probably is some level of Biden family corruption, but nominalizing it in that way kind of creates this this sense that it's like a massive corruption regime when... Biden's kind of just like a boring milk toast politician. Like he's not even on the scale of like the Clintons or the Obamas, like making massive money in the private sector outside of politics. Like he's a career politician. He just wants to make a politician's salary and say hokey things and and get his son a job, I guess. But every family does that. I just think like the way that the right has tried to inflate the Biden corruption as though it's this mat like as though they're like you know, the Sopranos or something. I'm sorry, Carmela, but I, I can't do it. I don't think you understand. I want you to write that letter. Excuse me? I 
said I want you to write the letter. Are you threatening me? Thre what threatening? <laughs> I brought you a regard pie and a high school transcript so you could write a letter of recommendation for my little son to work in an oil company. I'm an officer of the court. A lawyer. Just <laughs> absurd. That is not who Joe Biden is. Especially when, like, if you just turn the lens the other way, you do have a family that is, like, corruption the is their bread and butter. Like, yeah. it just, it seems like a, a not a very wise path to try to tread in smearing Joe Biden. But, but it's like that whataboutism that haunts every political discussion. Well, Joe Biden's also corrupt. Like, as if that cancels out Trump being corrupt or like, it just, it seems like, again, kind of an empty, just a, a fruitless path. Right. I just wanted to say, you know, as kind of my concluding thought here, the sort of equivocation or the, the escalating of Biden's corruption above that of, say, Trump um, is, uh, is I think, kind of fallacious in this particular article. But then again, you know, I think we can say with in multiple ways, in multiple levels of figuration, uh, justice is blind. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I will be here all week. <laughs> Yeah, Justice okay. is Blind is, it is actually a great statement. It's a great soundbite. Uh, we should not defund justice. Yes. That's the last thing we should do. That's right. The man yeah. specifically. Yes, yeah, yeah. He yes, needs Tristan to Justice. keep Tristan Justice's job. We need to keep having uh, tax Increase the well, funding for it. We yeah. just need to reform him. <laughs> we don't need to defund him. Much more reasonable. When well, you said, well said defund, it really turned me off. But when you said reform, I thought, yes, love it. That's right. Very, very yeah. That's how you get people on your side. That's how you, you're, it's not subtractive. So, well, this is. All right, folks. This, happy holidays. Happy holidays. This has been a real joy uh, <laughs> from all of us at Reverb. Uh, thank you for, for joining us today. We really enjoyed bringing this to you, and uh, we hope you got a little catharsis out of it as well. So, from all of us, uh, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. And until next time, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye bye. Our show today was produced by Ben Williams, Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by me, Alex Helberg. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 